it's funny at the time that that I did 8081 um, kind of up to that point I kept thinking wow man this, whichever record I'm working on now that's the last record I'm ever gonna get to make you know so the, those first few records for ECM were very specific about very specific things by the time 8081 came along it was like wow you know maybe I could make a record that's a little bit more like the music that, that I've been playing all of my life up to now that's not really represented in any of the records that I'd made till then but I had some specific things too about it the first thing was that Jack Dijonette and Charlie Hayden had never played together before except you know like I like incidentally at a jam session or something like that and that just seemed kind of impossible that it, they'd gotten that far along and had not had a, a, a setting that they could really play in and it seemed like that alone was a, was a reason to make a record and uh, I had gotten to know Jack well around that time um, had known Charlie for a few years and had also become very close by that time with Mike Brecker and also had known Dewey Redman from, you know, the days that he, Dewey was playing with Keith Jarrett's band and I was playing with Gary. And so the thought of getting Dewey and Mike together was intriguing to me the same way getting Charlie and Jack together was intriguing. So that was kind of the, the premise of it all. And also, I just loved all four of them. I mean, they were kind of all my favorites in a way. And that was what got me writing the music for that record, was just hearing their sounds in my head. And uh, ECM was excited about the, the possibility of that lineup recording, and we, we set the dates. And, um, you know, it was a classic ECM-type recording. We recorded very fast. And um, actually, I think we ended up recording it pretty much in one day, maybe did a little bit on the second day and wound up with a lot of material, enough material that it became a double record. It was a record that, going into it, I wasn't quite sure what it was going to sound like. I had this idea, but there were lots of unknowns because, first of all, having a record with two tenor players, that's not something that comes up all the time. Um, and, and all of those other X factors of people that had not played together before. But man, it just was uh, an unbelievable experience, a, a really magical recording session that, uh, uh, you know, for at least a couple of us was life-changing. I know that Mike Brecker always talked about that record as... You know, it was, for him, there was everything before 8081, and there was everything after 8081. It was like the record date that, you know, as he explained it to me, that changed everything for him. And then, you know, just there's one other thing that, that it, that's kind of, I guess, kind of sort of has to be said at this point, which is I've made, I don't know, 35, 40 records. There's really only two horn players I've ever hired, you know, for, for that kind of playing on, on my records, and that's Mike and, and Dewey. And honestly, as much as I love lots of other horn players, I've never heard anybody in my head the way I heard those guys in my head to get them to do that record. And it's the kind of thing where both Mike and Dewey transcend being jazz saxophone players. You know, Mike is Mike and Dewey is Dewey. And their individuality goes way beyond any style. 
And for me, that's like, you know, what I look for. That's what I live for in, in musicians. And it's hard to find in horn players, you know. Has nothing to do with vocabulary or greatness or jazz. It has to do with, with something else that, that's very important to me. It's not even intentional, but I have to say, I notice that every now and then. I look at, if somebody shows me a discography of my own records. It's like, wow, it's really only come up for me that I've hired, you know, two guys out of 40 records, you know, to do that. And it makes it extra specially sad for me to know that neither of those two people are on the planet anymore. You know, two people who, besides their musicianship, just as people, were people that I really loved. there are some things about that record that are notable I mean um, as far as I know that's the only time there until up to that point that there had been that kind of rhythm section where the, the guitar strumming thing w was integrated in in such a way with the way Jack plays drums stylistically you know in other words a real modern ultra modern rhythmic conception of drumming matched with uh, you know a sort of rhythm guitar approach that just had not really been done in jazz much and adding to that the connection that I think Charlie and I represented that has to do with this whole Missouri thing uh, made that track two folk songs kind of have a, a, a pulse and a foundation that until that time I don't think there had ever really been anything quite like that and then you add to that the way that Brecker played on that track which um, was actually kind of scary at the time it was like man what what is that you know it was something that uh, you know had all of the sort of post Coltrane you know um, vocabulary but was this whole other thing that wound up being, I think, a real defining moment in, in Brecker's approach. This is Jack DeJanette. One of my favorite songs is the, uh, the two folk songs. The groove on this thing just boils so, you know, from beginning to end. And I really love the way that it develops and builds. And uh, Charlie like anchors the music with his bass. And um, the way the solos build by each person there is it's just amazing. It's like a story. Each one of us telling a story musically. 
it's so strong and passionate you know it really pulls you in and, and I, for me playing it was just fantastic and even listening back to it you know it's even you know more you know more of a joy you know hearing back that hearing that track just the spirit of that was so wonderful and uh, that's one of my favorite tracks on there It's hard to know where to begin to talk about Jack Dijonet because he's such a powerful player and at the same time he's everywhere. I mean, you know, people talk about the jazz of the, you know, the modern era. I mean, you know, whether it's the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or whatever and you know, people talk about all kinds of different figures in that. But man, you know, when the dust clears, you're going to find the name Jack Dijonet everywhere throughout any discussion in that. There is no major musician who has not had Jack right at the center of their thing at one point or another. And the people who have avoided Jack have avoided him for a good reason, because they're not up to the, to the level to hang with him. And, um, you know, he's a, a challenging musician to play with. He, he will get all over you. I, I often joke, it's like, you know, doing 10 rounds with Muhammad Ali, you know, and, and the track Two Folk Songs is a classic example of that. I mean, what was going on there between the rhythm section of Jack and, and, and Charlie and I and Mike was like um, hardcore. And, uh, you know, I've been in that situation in a recording studio with Jack more than a few times where... Uh, you know, when the take is over, this guy's coming out there and, you know, you need the trainer to, like, towel him down. I mean, you know, he's he, he's just left it all there um, on the tape. And uh, he gives everything every time. And um, that track, I think, is one of the classic Jack tracks. Um, you know, that particular kind of thing that's kind of even eighth note, but it's swinging but it's, you know, got this whole other thing going on. It's a, a groove that just didn't exist before Jack came along. I think that track is, is really one of the great examples of, of Jack DeJanet at his very best. I wrote everything for that record for those guys and would not have thought of writing it under any other circumstances you know and each tune I think really speaks to that you know every day I thank you is a piece that was everything that I felt about Mike's playing and I can't imagine anybody else playing it except him
I feel the same way about the bat with Dewey. Um, the bat was a little bit of a, an interesting one for me because, you know, Dewey's relationship to Harmony, uh, as we knew from, the, you know, his playing with Keith, was really interesting. Um, you know, Keith would write pieces for, for Dewey that were, were very difficult, and Dewey would kind of figure out a way to, you know, get through those changes, you know, that, that was not, you know, what you would ever expect. It was really fascinating for me when I gave Dewey that tune. He took the tune in the bathroom for about two hours and just practiced playing like basically arpeggios of, of the changes um, up and down and then came out and said, okay, let's record it. And then didn't play anything like that, on, on, you know, for his solo. It's an amazing solo that he plays on there. And it was nothing like what I was hearing coming out of the bathroom. And it was really like uh, a, a, an incredibly instructive experience. Well, it was an interesting thing to have Dewey and Mike there because they were both, um, you know, kind of from different, we could say, communities, different cliques, you know. I don't know that they had ever really run across each other before. Um, certainly they were aware of each other, but, you know, it, it was a funny thing when we went on tour. We did, we did do a, an extensive summer tour in the summer of 81 with the same lineup that's on the record. Uh, and Dewey and Mike became very close friends and remained close for the rest of their lives. Um, they didn't see each other that often, but they were in touch all the time. And um, I think it was a really special friendship for both of them. There's something that, that happened with, with Mike and Dewey on that tour that is one of the most amazing things I have ever experienced or witnessed. You know, Mike and Dewey were very different kinds of players. They didn't really overlap in any way whatsoever. Um, you know, even though they were both tenor saxophone players, it may as well have been a trumpet player and a trombone player or something. Or, you know, uh, you know, they're just like completely different kinds of players. But we 
early on had a gig um, in Portugal at a jazz festival in Portugal and uh, David Oakes at that time relatively new sound guy said okay let me hear some tenor Mike play Mike went up and played a lick and uh, played some Mike kind of stuff and then said okay Dewey come up and play something and Dewey walked up to the mic and played some Dewey kind of stuff. And they said, okay, both you guys play something to, you know, at the same time. And Jack and I were both kind of sitting behind them. And they both walked up to the mic and played this long phrase, improvised, but completely 100% in unison. It sounded like one saxophone. And they and Jack and I and David Oakes stopped and just stared at each other for about 10 seconds like what just happened <laughs> because if if you had written out uh, a cadenza and said play this they would have had to practice it for a month to get it that tight and you know that was like the beginning of you know something with those guys on the record you know it was parsed out so that they were not always playing at the same time, but there is this long free thing, um, which is on uh, the what became, I think, the third side, um, called Open or something like that, where they they really do get into it, and it's just beautiful the way they played together on the record. But it went way further than that live. point about halfway through the day where we realized we had a double record it was sort of like how are we going to get all this on one record we had so much material the tracks were long and they were it was going well and that's when uh, Manfred Eicher the producer said you know we should keep going and try to make this a double album and, and Charlie would say hey I got some more net tunes here and Believe it or not, I had never played Turnaround at that point. It's funny because that's a tune that I've played a lot since then. And um, I think that I was reading. And, you know, I don't think I played it too good, actually, in terms of the melody and all that. But, you know, Charlie plays amazing on that track. And, um, of course, there's the famous, you know, exclamation at the end of the track. Um, a lot of people think that's me, but that's Charlie. You know, the, you know, for expressing his enthusiasm for, you know, the first time he's getting the chance to play with Jack, because that was really the first time they had played together, especially in that style. And also by that time, it was pretty clear the record was going really well. There was a great atmosphere in the studio. Um, maybe the be actually the best experience that I had um, and, and making any record, for, uh, you know, during the period of e you know time that I was recording with ECM was absolutely that record. And I remember after the the record day was over, there was a, a strike of some kind in Oslo. That's where we recorded it, and we all ended up having to take an all night train from Oslo to uh, 
you know, Hamburg or Copenhagen or someplace to fly to wherever we were all going. And I just remember after the date was all over, we all sat up all night, Manfred too, in this train, listening to the to the record over and over again. And uh, it was it was a great time. This is Charlie Hayden. All Pat thinks about is getting his music down so people can hear it and looking for new things to do. He has more energy, creative energy, than almost anyone I've ever known besides Don Cherry. He's always um, exploring new avenues of making new music. It's not about categories with him. It's about making wonderful, meaningful music that's going to touch people in a beautiful way. That's what he does. And uh, he had these great songs, and it just turned out to be another labor of love. Everybody played so great. Everybody was inspired because uh, Pat had so much devotion to this project. He's an amazing guy. 
final track on on the the record is one called Going Ahead, which is a solo guitar thing with with an overdub, meaning there's two guitars playing two different parts. And it's actually a piece that I'd written for all of us to play together. And it didn't really work. It was the only thing on the record date that didn't work. It was like we tried it. I had this melody and this idea and none of it worked. But it seemed like it was a good tune. And at the very end, as I mentioned, we were looking to expand the record out beyond a single record into a double record. So we needed a little bit more stuff. And there was an acoustic guitar in the studio, a crummy, beat-up Ibanez acoustic guitar. And, um, you know, I started playing the chords for that. I was showing Charlie the chords, and um, it was sort of like, you know, this could be something just on the acoustic guitar. So uh, Jan Eric, the recording engineer, set up some mics, and I went in there and played the chords, and then just played the melody. I was kind of doing a little demo for the guys, like, no, it should be more like this. And when I came in, everybody was like, wow, you should just do that. It sounded great. And I said, well, I think I did just do it. You know, <laughs> what's it sound like? And so we played it back and that's it. And that's what's on the record. That's how the record ends. And what's interesting is that lots of people still, you know, kind of talk about that track. And, and I do think that track was the beginning of a certain kind of vocabulary or sound or language it was you know a way that I hadn't really ever played before on a record and um, you know I see a connection in a way to the way that I played on that track to what you know later became Beyond the Missouri Sky or you know maybe some of the things that I ended up doing in other places um, I, you know I always think about wow that was just on that kind of like you know whatever guitar and you know and uh, I wasn't even trying to make a track I was just kind of doing a little example <laughs> and sometimes you get you know better stuff that way than if you really try so that was going ahead <laughs> <laughs> 